it's March of 2020, and Square Roots, an urban farming startup, has hit a wall. After a blockbuster year of all business metrics going up and to the right, the company faces a superbug it's not used to dealing with on its farms, COVID-19. Nearly overnight, its growth plans are rendered invalid as demand from its food services, restaurant, and retail partners had dried up. Square Roots needs to become a whole new business, but must stay true to its mission of dismantling the industrial food system. Heading into a possible recession, the company doesn't have 10 years to make a change. It has 10 months at best. What would you do if you were the CEO of Square Roots? Welcome to the Mavens of Change podcast. I am your host, Kunal Sarda. Our guest today is Tobias Peggs, a man whose superpower is a seemingly limitless ability to dive into and become an expert in any industry. Tobias is the CEO of Square Roots, an indoor farming company connecting people in cities to local real food. With production farms in Brooklyn, New York, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and many more on the way, Square Roots indoor farms recreate ideal growing climates from around the world, providing peak season flavor all year round in any urban location. Previously, Tobias was CEO at Aviary, a mobile photo editing company acquired by Adobe, as well as OneRiot, a social media analytics company acquired by Walmart. Tobias grew up in England and earned a PhD in artificial intelligence from Cardiff University. When Tobias isn't busy being CEO, he's also a Techstars mentor and a competitive triathlete. Tobias, I'm pretty sure if you grew a beard, I'd have to call you the Dos Equis man of the business world. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a good job. I cannot grow a beard. doesn't matter how long I don't shave. So that's fine. <laughs> it's a good skill to have. Now, before we get into the story of change at Square Roots, let's start with your own personal story of change. Tobias, how does someone go from being an AI scientist to tech CEO to wanting to disrupt the industrial food system? Walk me through the story of change of Tobias Peggs. Yeah, it sounds a little circuitous, doesn't it? I mean, honestly, there was no master plan. But the early days, especially, right, I sort of realized I didn't really know anything. What I did do, though, was just put down a list of things that I didn't want to do. <laughs> and then anything that popped up that wasn't on that list, I really sort of had a look at. I think a lot of that attitude was probably influenced by timing. Um, the early part of my career was just as the consumer web was happening. So the world was kind of changing very, very quickly, very rapidly. So rather than trying to strategize too much, I jumped in and had some fun. Through those paths, I ended up working with this guy, Kimball Musk, on a very early social media analytics platform, OneRiot, that was sold to Walmart. And, and while I was at Walmart, as part of that transaction, I worked there for a year and I ended up studying global grocery buying behaviors. And that was when I began to see at huge scale what the current food system is all about. And the fact that we're flying food from one part of the planet to the other and how long that food takes to get to the consumer and what that does to the quality of the food and what that does in terms of the impact on the planet. And that was really the spark for thinking about square roots and how we could essentially fix the food system. I was probably around 40 years old. I definitely was aware that I'm probably like halfway through life at this point and I would have been in a position to pick up another tech company and flip it and make a really good living there. But I kind of began to think, am I going to be happy at the end of my days if I haven't started something from total scratch myself? Like I just had 
this like burning desire to do that. So combine that personal drive, just wanting to start something from scratch with this more analysis driven, thesis driven reason for setting up square roots, right? Wanting to fix the food system and all those things came together and I was like 100% ready for it. I have so many questions on that, but most importantly, how do you explain to your mom at Christmas dinner why you can't seem to hold on to a job long enough in any industry or put your PhD in machine learning to any good use? Yeah, actually, my, my mother and father totally, they totally understand. My grandmother, he's not with us anymore. She was the one I remember having to explain when I became CEO of Avery, which was a mobile photo editing app. You know, essentially, we were making people's selfies look more beautiful before they post it to social media. And I remember trying to explain that to her. And she was like, but what do you sell? And I was like, I can't really explain that to you. The AI thing, funnily enough, square roots, there's a lot of AI inside these farms. The farms are cloud connected. We're connecting a ton of data, real-time environmental signals that help us then figure out how changes to the environment, changes to temperature or light or nutrients, how does that impact things like taste and texture and yield of the food that we're growing. So there's an AI engine that's kind of spinning there. So in a funny way, it's taken me 20 years to get there, but finally I'm using all of that AI stuff. So it sounds like you've almost gone back to your roots with uh, what's your roots. <laughs> that is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so you've entered both Avery and OneRiot when they were established companies, and you've taken over the role of CEO to essentially reposition these businesses for their next phase of growth. But now you are a co-founder along with CEO Square Roots. Who shows up as the founder of Square Roots on July 2016? Is it someone who is supremely confident in his abilities to be a seasoned CEO? Or someone feeling a bit of imposter syndrome as a founder? It's a great question. As you said there, I joined Avery and One Right. I became the CEO. I took over from the founders. I picked up the mission that they had and operationalized it, scaled it, turned it into a business, created enterprise value, sold it, did a job for the investors. So definitely someone that was really excited and motivated and thought he had done a ton of research and knew exactly how this thing was going to go. Imposter syndrome happens in the years after, right? As you kind of dig in and you realize how little you actually know, you know, the business gets bigger and you employ more people and you bring on more serious investors. And that's when you start to get imposter syndrome. It's like, wow, like, am I really the guy to be doing this? You definitely have some of those moments for sure. Yeah, the naivete of being a founder, a first-time founder has its advantages in the early days. It's a beautiful thing. If you could just capture that in a bottle and drink that all day long, that would be a wonderful headspace to be in. What's been the most meaningful change you've had to make in your management or communication style as you've gone from being just CEO of someone else's company to building your own company from scratch? When I was at Avery, I picked up someone else's vision and had to turn it into a company. And the founders were great people. You know, what I'm going to say is not, not a criticism of that, but to kind of make that happen, to connect the vision to the operations, I got introduced to and learned a lot and went deep into a management framework called The Playbook by an author called Patrick Lencioni. In short, what he advocates is that you put down a playbook, which is you know, a single sheet of paper that articulates what your mission is what your values are, what do you actually do in plain English so people can understand what are the strategic levers that you can pull in every project or initiative or partnership that you take to kind of gain an advantage over competitors. And what's most important right now 
basically OKRs for the next three or six months, and then who does what, a team shape, and you can articulate that literally on a piece of paper. And what that does then is draw a thread from the mission statement to what are you as an individual contributor doing today? And how does that contribute not just to this month's goals or this quarter's OKRs, but you're doing it in a way that's in line with the values and is definitely helping the company contribute to the mission. So you can kind of draw that line all the way from the mission to an individual project that you're working on right now. That, that was a very powerful framework for me. So we implemented that in Avery sort of grafted that on, you know, when the company was five or six years old, and that helped the company get to the next level and eventually an acquisition uh, with Square Roots. That's what we did on day one. So we've had that mission statement and the values, which translates to the culture and all the rest of it, literally from day one, that's baked into the DNA of the company. So having a bit more ownership in when in the life cycle of the company you put these things in play obviously is a big change. But there, there also seems to be something else that's unique about your approach at Square Roots in 2019, and that's your approach to competition. I've personally often seen you publicly congratulating and celebrating new entrants or existing competitors winning in the space. But I also know that you're a competitive triathlete, so the desire to win yourself is probably really strong. <laughs> How do you have this non-zero-sum game mindset to competition at Square Roots? And was it the same when you were more of a pure tech CEO before? Food is such a massive market. It's like 10 times bigger than tech. And and it's full of such huge problems. Industrial agriculture system is responsible for 30% of greenhouse gases. 70% of the food that we eat has got pesticide traces because of the length of time that food takes to travel or nutrients are breaking down to sugars, you can draw direct lines between that and obesity epidemics. And there's just like massive amounts of problems. So there's not going to be one winner here. There are going to be a ton of winners. And so really, I think about celebrating anyone that is contributing to what I call the real food revolution. And the more of us working on that, the better, quite frankly. The other way of thinking about it, though, is food tech space, certainly the indoor farming space, it really feels like the early stages of the internet did. You know, it's like 1995 again. You know this thing is inevitable, but no one's quite yet nailed the form or the business model or how it's going to be. And so it's a very collaborative space and people work together and celebrate each other's success. And it really reminds me of those early internet days. You know, I remember going to internet meetups in the mid-90s in London or whatever, and it didn't matter if you were setting up you know, web 1.0 travel websites or media websites or you know, whatever it was, everyone was really celebrating each other's successes and trying to help each other. It's very much like that in, this, in the indoor farming industry, right? Yeah, it makes sense. So it's probably a bit of the fact that the market is almost infinite. So worrying about competition taking away right. from your pie is limited, and you're really paving the way for the next generation of, of food, and you could use more alliance in the market. That makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, more alliance, but also, you know, more awareness, right? More awareness brings more investor dollars in. You know, there are investors in the space now that 12 months ago would think of themselves as pure play software investors, right? Now they're understanding that they too can get into the space and the economics are there. And so the more success stories there are, the more of that kind of supporting infrastructure that comes in to help more entrepreneurs. And it's just that rising tide that raises all boats. That makes perfect sense. So, Tobias, you have uh, founded Square Roots in July of 2016, and now you're walking me up to the line of our story of change. It's the year 2020. Tell me, Tobias, what is it like to be an employee, an investor, and a CEO of Square Roots in January of 2020? What's going well, and what's keeping you up at night? 
So whether you're an employee, a CEO, or an investor, you're definitely on the same page and definitely very excited about the year ahead, right? 2019 is a very big year for us. We 10x our growing volumes, the amount of food that we were growing, we 15x our revenue. We had expanded to new locations. We'd made huge strides with the underlying technology platform. And probably the proudest thing for me is that we'd managed to do that while scaling the culture as well, right? felt still like a square root. So it was pretty amazing. We'd landed a very big deal with one of the biggest food distribution companies in the US. And we had a very clear pathway with them where we were building farms on all of their distribution centers. And off the back of that, we just closed a series A in December with top tier investors, very clear growth plan for the future. So it was great, right? I would say the thing that was keeping me awake in January, honestly, was me, right? given all that growth and all these investors and all this opportunity, you definitely look at yourself and think, okay, well, I've got to level up in terms of stamina and skills and we've got a company that's getting big and growing fast and I've got to make sure that I can lead this pool of very, very talented people and make sure we capitalize it. They were fun times, although I definitely was doing some reflection on you know, what I needed to do next. A bit of a segue here and you talked about your own need to level up as a CEO. And I like to say as a manager... Every time your team grows in size and doubling is a big number, your style to management has to scale and you have to build some mm-hmm. new muscles. What was the one thing you were thinking about in terms of your management style that potentially needed to change as you did that? Less about my management style. It was more about empowering the management team that we had. We had a pretty youngish team and super talented and very high energy and very startup-y. What I sort of realized that I needed to do to help scale the company was really invest in those people so that they really felt empowered to go run their departments and take that on and develop themselves as managers. That was really my uh, focus coming into the year. So January of 2020, you've exponentially grown your revenue run rate. You've doubled your headcount and you've just finished raising a cumulative $25 million in capital to pour fuel on the fire. You've just communicated an articulate and aggressive nationwide growth strategy with retail partners. It's got to be feeling pretty darn good as a founder and CEO to be getting closer to escape velocity as a startup. Mm -hmm. And then March rolls around. Mm -hmm. Everyone knew we had a health crisis, but back in March, the experts were still talking about this being a temporary blip in the economy at best. What are the leading indicators that you started seeing that told you that we may be heading into a full-blown crisis? We were looking at what was happening internationally and what we actually did was we put an operating framework together, you know, like a COVID framework in mid-February, just in case. What we didn't want to do was be in a position where chaos happened one night and we were kind of scrambling and being reactive, right? So we just, you know, took some time to say, okay, if this, then that. So just to stop you there for a second, Tobias, February was early to be thinking about this, right? February, Mm -hmm. I still remember going to New York every day in the train thinking this is a overseas problem. Yeah. So not a lot of CEOs were thinking about preparing for COVID. Why was there that level of paranoia that you were feeling to need to prepare the company for for that? When you're running a farm, it doesn't matter how high tech it is and the whole thing, it's very different from running a software company. You have got food safety and people safety top of mind every single day. And that just puts you in a different mindset of needing to understand risk. And that doesn't mean take the whole management team off site for a week and put together an exhaustive plan. That's an hour's conversation with the relevant smart people to say, okay, 
what if what's happening in China happens here? We sort of articulated level one, two, three, four operations based on, you know, various degrees of craziness. Level four was like society breaks down and everyone's afraid to leave their house. But we just put that in place. And then the bit of data for us in New York was state of emergency and sustained community spread. As soon as we're told that is happening, boom, we move into level two. And here's what level two means. People on the farms, we have to reduce the capacity. We need half the number of people in there because we have to create a space for social distancing. People who are not needed in the farm, software engineers, marketing people, everyone works from home. Here's how we would do that. So it was high level enough that it didn't take us you know, a long time to plan for. But as soon as that trigger data happened, we knew what to do. And we weren't in this kind of you know, reactive chaos. So you have these four level plans for what happens, but then March rolls around and I would imagine things kick up a notch. Come around the third week of March, we move into state of emergency, right? So again, we move operations and that's all fine, but everything changes and literally overnight. We were seeing 10x demand from our retail partners because everyone was hoarding and buying as much food as possible, thinking they were you know, not going to be let outside their house for the next month. And at the same time, all the restaurants that we were working with were getting boarded up. Again, new workflows in the farms that I talked about. We thought through those in theory, but now was the time to roll those out in practice. A lot of partners that we've been talking to about building farms together, and all of a sudden they've got their own operational fires to put out. Those conversations disappear. Again, being this food company, we're taking signals and not very clean signals from the FDA and the CDC and the local government, then you can't have your whole company trying to keep on top of that. So we put in place a COVID response team whose job was to bring in all of that signal, determine what was relevant for our company, quickly introduce new policy if needed on the fly and quickly roll that out across the organization. And that kept a sense of calm for everybody else, even though that team was dealing with, with craziness. We never had to react so quickly. The key thing was make sure people were safe. Once we'd made people were safe, and we could grow food to make sure we can get that food to people safely. You know, and then the third thing I did once I was very confident in those two things, I literally started a Google Doc and the front line was, we're now in wartime, right? That was the opening sentence. Before we actually go into your wartime phase, as a manager, we're not really supposed to be talking about expressing our true emotions in these moments of crises. But just to make you a little bit uncomfortable for a second, Square Roots so, in 2020, is your baby that is four years old. You're just about to hit escape velocity, following years of blood, sweat, and tears, and this shit happens. What's it feeling like four years in, here's the state of the business and the world? I'll be really honest with you. I was just in adrenaline mode, listening very intently, more than I've ever listened before, processing information very quickly, faster than I've ever processed before, and then turning that into, into action quickly. And, you know, as I sort of sitting down and thinking, you know, does the world still want this, right? Does the mission still hold? And, and actually, given everything that we were seeing about food shortages and the industrial food system not being resilient and empty supermarket shelves over here and food being left in fields to rot over here because, you know, the system wasn't resilient, everything that you were reading suggested that what we were doing, healthy, sustainable, resilient, distributed, year-round food. The world still wants how we're going to get there might be a little different, but boy, the world still wants this. So the mission didn't change. If we go back to that playbook, the mission doesn't change. The values don't change. We're probably operating with more of a sense of urgency. We're probably 
realizing there's a recession ahead. And so how do some of our food products need to address that? There's definitely stress elsewhere. Just brought in a really incredible investor group, Alasire Ventures, right, who backed this growth plan that we had with partners. And you know, partners are going to be distracted for the next 12 months, right? So we got to figure out something else. For me, honestly, I didn't really have time to process how I was feeling, which is I kept this done. I'm sure I'll pay for it at some point later this year. So let's push those emotions back down and let's go back to being sure. a badass here. Tobias, I used the word wartime before, which was one of the themes I wanted to talk to you about. For the listeners, Ben Horowitz has popularized the need to be a wartime CEO who, quote, cares about the speck of dust on a gnat's ass if it interferes with the prime directive. It sounds to me like you've actively made that choice to be a bit more of a, of a wartime CEO. Is that something that came naturally to you or is that something you had to actively change for yourself? It was a flick of a switch. We're now in a state of emergency. Okay, everything has changed. High adrenaline, super focused, caring about the speck of dust on the net test person. That's who you are, right? And it was, yeah, literally a flick of a switch. Tobias, this is the first time you are a CEO during a true nationwide crisis. Whom did you turn to help, if anyone, for advice here? I would think about it in sort of short-term, immediate, and long-term. So short-term were things like half of our customers, the restaurants just evaporated, and the other half, the grocery retail stores are going crazy, gangbusters. At 100,000 feet, the plan is pretty simple. How do you point your supply? All at grocery retail stores, right? The how of doing that, honestly, I'm still processing like the million and one things that, that we did to do it. In parallel, you're figuring out that long-term plan, right? How do you think about growth in this environment? What is not just 2020, but 2021 and 2022 look like? And there it is pretty helpful to talk to advisors, more experienced people who've been here before. I remember one conversation that I had with a very high-level government advisor on food systems in the UK who'd seen what happened to food after the 2008 recession. That recession was really about money. It was economic. So people coming out of that event, deep recession in terms of food purchases, this idea of wanting food that you can trust and understanding where your food comes from and high quality, like people didn't care about that. They just wanted cheap calories to feed their family. And, you know, what he was telling me was that event in 2008, he thinks put the real food movement back by a decade in the UK because people just didn't care anymore. But what was happening here? Yes, we're heading for a massive recession here. So does history repeat? Does the real food movement evaporate? Well, what he was seeing was, is that because this recession was triggered actually by a health issue, this pandemic, that actually this post-COVID consumer, even though they're going to be in a recession, would still value healthy food and want food that they can trust and want to make sure that they're spending the few dollars that they have because they're in a recession but they're spending that on food that they trust to nourish their children. And he was watching that happen. And, and you know, those sort of very high level macro trends that you can you know, understand and tap into people who are watching that, that's super helpful as you begin to think, okay, well, what does this company need to be in 2021 and 2022 so we can come out of this in a really strong position? That makes sense. So part of the plan now is to redirect your supply. Part of the plan is obviously very tactical, which is everyone's remote. There's just the reality of running the business. So how do you actually run a business in, in this world? But what is the most difficult thing you realize you have to do as you come up with this new plan in terms of your team, in terms of the product? What is the big item that you need the team to refocus on? 
dealing with this post-COVID mid-recession consumer that we knew that we were addressing. At the beginning of the year, our, our products, we got the technology, we got this, but at the end of the day, our product is food. And we package that food and sell it in supermarkets, right? And I think at the beginning of the year, our product was a lot of premium product beautiful herbs and the sort of analogy that I draw on it is one to Tesla Motors 10-15 years ago whenever they started the first product that they put out was the Tesla Roadster $120,000 sports car very high-end premium product and where the cost of the underlying technology was at that point in time it really only made sense to put that in a $100,000 sports car but by selling that sports car that then gives them the runway to come up with a Model S more accessible, bigger market, selling that gives them the runway to come up with the Model 3, even bigger market, more runway, and eventually they get to electric cars for everyone. That was kind of the pathway that we were on at Square Roots. We start with these premium herbs, and that gives us the runway to figure out our Model S, and that would then give us the runway to figure out our Model 3. The 10-year plan, yeah, right? You know, exactly, yeah. the 10-year plan. And so the conversation with our farming and engineering teams then was, okay, we don't have 10 years, we got 10 months. And specific to food, we were looking at a product that had a broader base and that was at a lower cost. And we sort of landed on arugula or something that had like huge volumes, actually huge demand for arugula. And so our rallying cry was profitable arugula. I can imagine inside Tesla, they're saying, you know, the Model 3, for us, it was profitable arugula and not 10 years, 10 months. And then that sense of urgency and a recalibration of the goals and getting people to understand that what we do today has to be on your urgent list. Your important list isn't enough. Only do stuff that's on the urgent list, right? So you've got everybody hyper-focused on this thing and, and magic happens. I don't think that's sustainable. Well, let's talk about how that magic and that sense of urgency happened because it turns out you didn't leave it to chance. In preparing for this conversation, I'd asked you how you communicated this change of plan to your team. You said you created a new OKR to launch three profitable SKUs. And then you told your team, quote, as you look around at your current projects, if you don't feel that you're directly contributing to these new OKRs, stop what you're doing, recalibrate, talk to your manager, and make sure you get moving on this new plan. I want to talk to you about this for a second. It's pretty clear that you're telling the team to burn the boats. I imagine you thought hard about how to say this. Why did you choose to tell the team to go all in and risk completely disorienting the team? as opposed to taking a more subtle and slow approach. Come back to this playbook that we had quite a few times, right? And everyone in the company is very familiar with how the mission and our values plays all the way back down to what they're doing every day. And that gives people a lot of context. And it means that, you know, whatever individual task I'm doing on a particular day, I know how that directly contributes to the mission. Very powerful framework, actually. And, and honestly, so I'm not sure I realized how powerful it was until we, we went through this. Listening to that clip, you said, right, okay, burn the boats, focus on the new plan. But it didn't really come across like that, hopefully, inside the organization, right? Because again, the mission doesn't change. How you might go about your day-to-day -day job might have to change a little bit, but you should be able to see very clearly how it still contributes to the mission. See, everyone has got that context. And there's no confusion about why that change is being made because everybody can see how this new plan in this crazy macro environment still helps us march towards the mission. That would be my hope anyway. And, and certainly that's the feedback that I've got around the organization. 
Well, it turns out that it's not just a hope of yours, Tobias, and that you've architected this over time. I spoke with a few folks on your team over the past several weeks, and they've told me about this almost maniacal focus on reiterating the long-term vision for Square Roots, dismantling the industrial food system. And I was told that even during this all hands where you were presenting new OKRs, you again chose to speak about what's not changing about the vision while you were telling the team everything that was changing in the short term. In speaking with a lot of CEOs in the midst of large change, they say that they need to get their team focused on hitting the plan for this month instead of worrying about the long term. Here, instead, you've chosen to reiterate during one of your most important meetings what cannot change about the vision for the business. Was this a really important part of how you were communicating burning the boats? Yeah, it really is. You know, I've been in organizations where the plan changed and you as an individual contributor or a, you know, a manager somewhere in the hierarchy just feel total whiplash. And that is a very, very, very fast way to burn it. And again, I hope that the way that we've chosen to articulate what the future needs to look like for us by anchoring it still in this long-term vision and making sure that people still are very, very motivated for that sort of 50-year goal. Things might change on a day-to-day basis, but hopefully you don't feel so much of that whiplash because you know, okay, well, I'm still trying to fix the food system. Okay, let's, let's go again. And yeah, I think this is obviously a crazy time for everybody, right? You know, people that work at Square Roots, right? We've got parents who are suddenly needing to figure out homeschooling. We've got people whose leases are coming to an end in New York City and maybe they'll never live in the city again. And like, what do they do? We've got people whose, you know, family or friends, right? Are sick and, you know, in, in some cases dying. There's a lot of emotional and macro chaos going on around people. And the very least that you can do, I think, you know, when you're running a company is just try to provide a sense of direction and calm and keep things consistent. So that these people dealing with all this chaos in their life, at least they know when they get to work, okay, I'm centered, I know what I'm doing, I can get productive very quickly, and I feel good and and motivated about what I'm trying to do here, right? That's in essence what we try to do. So speaking of things that you don't want to change about the business, I also have to ask this. You're telling the company that we need to transition from just selling these premium products to accelerating our ability to produce low-cost, higher-demand products. In doing so, you've just made a comparison to Tesla going from the Roadster to Model 3. Now, this comparison is interesting because I've always wondered, when you communicate things like lower cost, how do you make sure the org doesn't interpret this as, let's just ship cheaper products? which is dramatically different from offering a high-quality product at a different price point. Are you worried at all at this point that the company will overcorrect on things like profitability and lose sight of what sets Square Roots apart in the market in premium products? Beyond communicating this vision again, what else are you doing to make sure that people hit the plan for the year in launching new low-cost products, but also don't do things like ship cheap products? It's a great question. You know, I think we were pretty well instrumented pre-COVID, instrumented meaning, you know, a regular flow of data that was coming and we had the right forums in place to make smart decisions. The sort of cadence of the company is day-to-day, obviously data is being tracked on sales and yield and, you know, whatever else. We have a weekly management meeting where we look at those KPIs. We're making tactical decisions. We then have a monthly all hands where we're sharing those KPIs with the whole company. And again, reiterating the long-term vision and how the you know, results from this month play into that. 
same set of data, slightly high level narrative maybe. And then we have a quarterly board meeting where, again, we look at the same set of data. Are we on track? And so none of that really changed because it didn't feel like we had to do more to communicate the mission and the plan than we were doing previously. Previously, you could argue we maybe spent too much time doing that. It was very, very important to us and we would spend a lot of time in communication making sure that everyone was on that same page. The reason that we do that is that we want every individual to have the context and feel empowered to move the needle themselves. So given that was our MO anyway, we were already doing a lot of communication. The thing that I have done just to make sure that that consistent regular articulation of the mission and what an individual is doing to contribute to that mission, just to make sure that is always happening, I have tended to sit in as an observer on some departmental meetings now. Maybe previously I wouldn't sit in on the weekly farm all hands meeting, right? They're talking about specific details on the nutrient mixes this week and what beneficial bugs we really, and it's like wildly fascinating, but it's not necessarily something I'm spending, you know, two hours a week listening to. Whereas now I sit in on that. Generally speaking in the office, I'm quite a big body language people manager. You set the goals, you tell people to get on with it, you're here to support them, shout if you need any help. Sometimes people will explicitly shout when they need help. Sometimes you can just tell from someone's body language that they need help and you can, you know, jump in and and try and help out. And obviously you can't do that in this remote world. So I guess these kind of listening sessions, right, where I turn up as an observer to the meeting, that's like the proxy for the body language, you know, management for me, right? And so Maybe then coming out of that, if I hear someone getting slightly off track or I can just feel that they're distracted or they've got other things on their mind, I can then pull someone aside one-on-one after that and just kind of course correct. So I guess I'm doing a little bit more of that maybe than I would have done previously. What do your leadership team meetings start to look like after this all hands? Are they any different? Are there any new metrics that you're tracking? Is there any change to the way you're running these meetings? trying not to, right? It's sort of a funny thing. You don't want too much to change because you don't want everyone to feel whiplash. And also, you know, we're trying to build a company for the next 50 years. And so we also have to be thinking about trying to maintain culture through this very different period. And so you want people to be, you know, even more focused than they were previously, more of a sense of urgency than there was previously. I probably am being a bit more like that manager who cares about the the speck of dust. (laughs) But you still want the sort of managers in the organization to feel very empowered to make their own choices because they know the context. And so it's less about, you know, kind of micromanaging and this is the way it's going to be. And it's more about, you know, maybe more regular articulation to get people to think harder about making sure they've got real conviction around the plans that they're coming up with is going to help us get towards that mission. So I've probably spent more individual time with the managers around the organization, but hopefully not in a micromanaging way, really just trying to provide more support, more help, and get them to come up with the right answers faster and then help them make sure that their teams are mobilized very, very quickly to get on with them. So, Tobias, you've had to go back to the drawing board on the plan for 2020 due to COVID. You've restructured operations, you've redirected your supply, but most importantly, you've articulated during the all-hands an ambitious plan to bring the future forward by bringing new products that might have taken 10 years in the future to market in 10 months. What happens after this all-hands? Do you get any closer to that Tesla Model 3 product for Square Roots? What's amazing is that we launched the first version of that product 10 weeks after that. 
So that's yeah. astounding, right? <laughs> We're talking about right. accelerating a 10-year transformation from the Roadster to, to Model 3 and compressing that to 10 months. How does that turn into 10 weeks? Is that a lucky accident? Can you point to something specific that might have accelerated that? I think the last four years worth of knowledge. And so we knew how to do it. We had a hell of a 2019 10x growth in yield, 15x growth in food. The partnership that we had signed with Gordon Food Service had really made sure our technology platform was very robust and that we really focused on reducing our costs to meet the needs of their customers. And sort of as a consequence of that, our unit economics were actually really robust. And the fact that we're able to do that on a very solid uh, unit economics platform gave us that conviction very, very quickly. Tobias, just reflecting back on the last three months, is there anything you wish you would have done differently in how you managed this change? I mean, if we're talking specifically about Corona, COVID-19, no, I don't, I don't think so. Like no major regrets. You know, I'm sure we've done some of the wrong things and, you know, given the situation again, I might have chosen a different direction, but, but we're not just going through COVID-19. We're also going through a global recession that's been, been triggered by this thing, economic shock. And we're going through a major moment in the Black Lives Matter movement. As a company that cares, we you know, realized right, that we were not doing enough there and had to start to think about doing things differently, specifically in terms of COVID-19. No, I think mean, we've made the right plan. Some of the individual decisions would I've done it slightly differently, maybe, but like, let's just get on with it. But given everything else that's going on, there's certainly a lot of reflection around things that, not that I would have done differently in the last three months, but like things that I should have done differently over my entire career. Tobias, I know the wounds are still raw and you're still processing this change as it happens on the fly, but I really appreciate you being so candid about how the last few months have gone. I want to end this podcast with uh, my favorite session, which is called the rapid fire section. I ask you a bunch of questions and you answer these in 30 seconds or less. How does that sound? Sure, let's go for it. There we go. What are the kinds of things that you're reading? It might be a blog or a book that has helped you manage this change over the last few months. Because of social distancing and general need to show like tighter operations, we're thinking about future financing. A bunch of us went pretty deep on lean manufacturing. You know, we went on a real binge there. A lot of us read or listened to a book called The Goal by Eli Goldratt, the story of a generic widget factory plant manager who's you know, facing a lot of change and flux in the industry and applies these lean techniques to come out looking like a rock star and his whole team are doing awesome and the business is great. And that's actually very helpful to get us really focused on some of the changes that we needed to make inside the farms to make it more lean, essentially. So a lot of specific reading rather than big macro trend reading. Tell me, what do you believe about building a business in the post-COVID world that most people might disagree with? <laughs> There's a lot of opinion and blog posts and you know Twitter and whatever else around how the world is going to be distributed workforces and we're all going to work at home. And a lot of that is coming from software VCs, frankly, and it's a really small part of the world. In farming, we need people in the farms to grow the food, right? It's just, it's very different. So, you know, I think what I feel to be different is this whole narrative around how the world is going remote. And like, yeah, for a really small section of the world. What we need to do is make sure that we've got people safe environments and processes that are also going to be productive for the world where you're moving atoms around. And, uh, you know, that's the vast majority of the planet. So we need some help figuring that out. 
don't listen to VCs too often. That's very sage advice. <laughs> <laughs> what is the one quality that you look for in your managers as you are shepherding the company through change? Given the way that we operate, where we set clear mission, articulate clear goals that are three or six months out and then empower people to get on with it, you want your managers to be able to deliver that narrative and bring their teams along with them. Again, that's a very different style than giving someone a specific instruction and telling them to do it. If you're going to work in this world where everyone feels empowered to you know, move the needle for themselves, then you have to provide that context and that narrative when you're delivering that new plan. And so, yeah, the, the quality that I look for in my managers as they're working and bringing their departments along is an ability to obviously not just be amazing at their job, but be able to tell that narrative in a consistent way that brings the whole company along. That's exhausting, by the way. Yeah, I'm sure. And then this is probably what you're going to say, but last question for you. What did you underestimate as the most difficult part <laughs> about managing this change? Honestly, I probably underestimated the amount of communication that would be involved. There are so many conversations, right? And of course, you're doing that over Zoom as well. So it is pretty exhausting. And with that communication, again, you're trying to bring people along with you. So you're not just talking about specific goals and targets. You're constantly coming back up to the broader picture, setting the context, providing that narrative, bringing people along with you. That takes a lot of time. It's tiring, frankly. But the end result then is everybody gets how they can then pick the ball up and start to run it. And you end up doing 10x more than you would do if you were just delivering specific instructions. So yeah, is it tiring? Yes. Does it help us do 10x more than we do otherwise? Absolutely. Well, Tobias, like I said, I know this is still raw for you and you're still in the midst of change. But thank you for being open to talking about these things as they happen. We're continuing to follow the many successes that you've had in your career. And Square Roots is obviously on a really great path as well. Thank you and good luck with everything. Thank you. Well, that's our episode for today. I'm your host, Kunal Sarda, and this podcast is brought to you by Aria. Workforce incentives are a superpower in changing behaviors and delivering business results. But getting incentives right is hard. Aria brings science to the design, management, and measurements of workforce incentives that move the needle for businesses. Visit ariaworks.com to learn more.